0: Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today, our guest is Blue Knight, an independent consultant with broad experience in neurobiology, predictive analytics, bioinformatics, complexity science, yoga, meditation, and art. A co-organizer of the Complexity Weekend Community of Practice and the Active Inference Lab, Blue has a very broad range of experience and interests and seeks to integrate these interests into a balanced life. Let's begin. Hi, Blue. Nice, nice to see you again.
1: Hi, George. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Um, thanks for joining me. And uh, where are you calling in from today?
1: I am in sunny, beautiful Las Cruces, New Mexico
0: uh that sounds that sounds great yeah it's a sunny day here in concord massachusetts as well but a little bit warm unseasonably so i think um i understand you had some fires earlier in the year in the year is that all calmed down
1: we've had since the fire excessive rain for like three months more rain than i've ever seen in the 20 years i've lived here
0: so a uh, thousand year in one in a thousand year fires followed by one in a thousand year floods that's uh, those are, these are crazy times. They are. Um, well, I'm glad to see your, uh, you know, it sounds like you're doing well right now. So that's good. Um, sunny day. Um, so, Blue, tell me a little bit about your background and what, you, what got you into complexity science.
1: So I have a PhD in cellular and molecular neuroscience. And when I was doing my doctorate, I was looking at how neural cells differentiate and they become neurons and they become glia and this was kind of my phd work and i really found not two distinct bucket of cells i found a a bucket that was like a continuous bucket. Like I didn't find neurons and glia. I found something along a continuum and that really goes against the grain, the traditional like background in neuroscience. And so I looked into what people do when a problem is more complicated than the field thinks. So there's like a very reductionist level thinking in neuroscience that everything kind of has to be this way and follow a certain standard. And um, when I looked into that, I came across complexity science and the Santa Fe Institute and applied to go to the Complex Systems Summer School there. Um, And so that was like the summer right before I defended my dissertation. I uh, was there at the Santa Fe Institute and kind of have been studying complexity, working in complexity, um, exploring complexity ever since. So
0: so did uh, did that introduction to complexity help you gain some perspective on the problem you'd been seeing in in your neuroscience work
1: no. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. So, I mean, and I had studied systems biology before, but it it really didn't give me anything new, but it it completely derailed my research interests, which was awesome, actually. Like, it's nice to just have your whole life upended and be presented with a whole new set of tools to solve challenges that you've always been thinking about. Like, so I had new tools to think about in neuroscience and I had new tools to think about all problems with um, after, you know, the complex system summer school and just a new network of people to explore research problems and questions and have fun with
0: Um, well let's go back a little bit because you use the word reductionist which i guess is uh sometimes applied to the to what might be called old science you know the idea that you break everything apart look at the components and figure out how it works so how did uh so let's talk about neuroscience again i guess the you said the conventional idea was that you know a, a neural type cell you know early in its stages will differentiate and it'll become either a neuron or a glial cell, something like that. Yeah. And what's the difference between those two kinds of cells?
1: So in the traditional like old standing, um, classical perspective of neuroscience, the neurons do all of the electrical signaling and have all of the, like, they're, they're the stars of the show. And the glia is kind of more like the supporting cast role. So really, um, you know, we've come to know that glia also do electrical signaling, but it's just very different than the classic action potential that a neuron does. So I mean, there's Huge differences. They they play different roles, just like your heart cells and your lung cells. The, there are differences. They have different functions, but both are necessary for for the brain to survive. So it's not like you can have a glia free uh, existence it, it, or glia free brain. Those don't happen. So.
0: And what was your uh, what was your PhD work on? What was that? Uh, what was that work that you did? So
1: I looked at human early like human. Um, Astrocytes. So this was kind of like the, the start of the project was I, I looked at um, human uh, embryonic astrocytes that and I cultured them and I cultured them in different conditions. I cultured them in a flat plastic monolayer um, like you would normally see on the uh, in a tissue culture dish. And then I also like laid them on some hydrogel material that kind of has the consistency of jello. And so like I I put this layer of jello down at the bottom of the flask and then put the cells in. And and so when I added this um, hydrogel layer, I really saw a huge difference in morphology of the astrocytes. So these are, are normal human astrocytes. And then I put them in the hydrogel and they started to look like neurons. They started to develop these like long extension processes and stuff. And I was like, whoa, Um, like, can astrocytes change into neurons? Is this possible? And like, I didn't add any growth factors or I didn't do anything. And it wasn't matrigel. So, so like matrigel has a ton of growth factors in it that can do weird things to your cultures. And and that's a classic hydrogel. But this is just a chemically defined uh, 16 mer self-assembling polypeptide monomer and so like i knew exactly what was in my chemically defined um hydrogel and so it was appeared that the stiffness of the surface um or of of the culture media are having multiple dimensions to, to cross maybe um affected the change and so then i went on to look at gene expression and i did rna sequencing work and then i looked at um not astrocytes but i looked at like a a neural precursor stem cell and i differentiated those in different conditions and i looked at tubulin expression and so how different markers are expressed inside cells tends to like lead the field to say, "Oh, that's a neuron because it expresses X Y Z protein, or it can't express X Y Z protein because it's a neuron." <laughs> right? So, so but I've really found a, a great a great deal of variety when looking at markers and looking at genes that were expressed um, in the neurons and the astrocytes. Like things that shouldn't be there were there, and I mean, it just was all a fuzzy gray area, not a bucket of neurons and a bucket of glia.
0: So that process of how a uh, how a stem cell Moves into the role that it plays in the brain is a pretty comp sounds like it's more complicated than people want to think it is.
1: Well, I don't think that we understand it at all. <laughs> like, I, I still don't think, I mean, I think it's so complicated that people know that they have a long way to go generally, but um, just even the process of existing, not not just becoming, but existing as a cell in the brain, existing as a glial cell or existing as a neural cell. I think that is more complicated than than people or, or more complex than, than people like to think.
0: Yeah. So I think that uh, people may have heard about how complica- how complex the brain is and it has something like, what, 100, 100 billion neurons? Do I have that right? 100 billion yeah. neurons, which is, you know, more than 10 times more than there are human beings on the face of the earth. And they've all got these connections and they're a giant network. And, um, so that's pretty complex, even just thinking about neurons connecting, but now the way these different pieces of the brain are interacting is also quite complicated. Nobody really understands it.
1: I mean, we have insight and we understand parts of what are, what are happening at any snapshot, but, but, like all we could actually do is take a snapshot, and so that that kind of is maybe what contributes to this reductionist um, m- way of thinking, especially in the human brain. Like I can't look inside the hum- human brain. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't actually like cut it up and fi- figure out what's going on or what the effects of a drug are or, or any of these things because no one's signing up to guinea pig, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I can mm-hmm. only look at a piece, and so the, you know I was just looking at um, cells growing in culture as opposed to like a a living animal. And, you know, there there are ways, but all we can do is just get glimpses of what's actually happening. It's like, as soon as you start to take apart a cat to figure out what makes a cat purr, it stops being a cat. It's not going to purr at that point. So so like you can't, you can't actually get to the root of what you're trying to solve because you are dismembering the system.
0: Yeah. And when you dismember it, you may see some stuff that you won't see, the thing working together. Exactly. That reminds me of the, I remember learning that uh, um, there was once a time when people talked about the electrical signals in the brain and it all drives everything. And and there's about 90% of the brain that does stuff that they couldn't figure out what it was electrically. And so they called it, you know, um, they called it noise. We have all this electrical noise in the brain. And that was just because people didn't know what it did. Right. And so from a reductionist standpoint, if you can't figure out what something is doing, you just say, oh, well, that's just noise or junk. So you have a different perspective now on, on the complexity of uh, how the brain works. And um, and you so you said that your move into complexity science was was uh, something that you really enjoy different tools, different challenges but it didn't didn't necessarily Solve those problems you were looking at in neuroscience, or at least not yet. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it, but it just presents a new way to look at at problems and to to realize that you you might not be seeing the whole thing. It's like the elephant. You know, you're feeling the trunk, you're feeling the leg, you're, you're feeling the body, and so all the parts feel different. Uh, that's how we solve problems. Um, And and that maybe leads to the reductionist view, um, because, like, all you can actually categorize is the piece that you're working on. But but panning out, we can, you know, draw some larger conclusions. And we do see the intricacy and interconnectedness of all the different pieces, although we can't maybe provide a detailed explanation for those things. We know that more is going on at, at at, at a bigger scale than maybe what we would like to assume.
0: So it sounds like the Santa Fe Institute is a very different kind of environment than than the than the traditional academic process, right?
1: Well, yes and, and no. I, I mean, I um, my PhD advisor was ha- trained in biophysics, and so I. Really, kind of was already at this very interdisciplinary, um, like physics, biology, chemistry. I liked working across these fields, even engineering. So I had many different collaborators, like throughout my, you know, undergrad and and PhD. Uh, so I was working in a very interdisciplinary way already. So that wasn't new for me, um, and, and that cause sometimes is the biggest barrier for people coming into complexity is the interdisciplinarity of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of already old hat, um, mm-hmm. just the yeah the tools for analysis i think were the were the most fun and maybe most revolutionary for for me like um multilayer network analysis and and different things like that so it just was you know looking at nonlinear dynamics and yeah those those things
0: so so i want to go back for a second and ask you to um, I'm old school, right? So biology, chemistry, physics are all separate disciplines. What is what exactly is biophysics?
1: So great question. Um, And that's a field like I'm still working there um, now. So so it's like when you look at physical properties that like my Ph.D. research is a perfect example about using a hydrogel substrate like the the Young's modulus of the hydrogel is very different than the Young's modulus of a plastic dish. And, And so it's how these physical. Yes, yes, yes.
0: What is the Young modulus? <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: as, as as a physicist, I thought you would know that one. The um, Young's modulus is just a measure of the elasticity of a substrate. So, so when you are, are looking at like how elastic it is, um, mm-hmm. and like we we know the difference between soft and hard, right? Like, yeah. so that's something we can judge. But it's like the 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 bounciness or the spring spring backable. <laughs> spring backableness that sounds so scientific um but but yeah so it's it's the elasticity measurement and you know that matters for a lot of things like like if you um, drop a, a glass onto a concrete surface from six feet above it's going to break if you drop it onto a trampoline maybe it'll break but maybe not so
0: yeah so the physical the physical characteristics of the substrate in the case of the hydrogel or whatever is important in terms of determining the behavior of those evolution of those cells. Exactly, because you know, we all yeah.
1: operate within the laws of physics. Yeah. All and of so evolution- another
0: yeah, would another one be something like, you know, the mysteries of protein folding. You know, proteins uh, you know, we didn't used to know how they work, but then we figured out it has something to do with the shape they assume and certain configurations actually will end up, you know, triggering certain other reactions. And so the physical shape of a protein is An important part of how it functions. Is that an example of a similar, similar idea?
1: So, so actually, biochemistry I think took that over.
0: <laughs> so I don't know that. <laughs> okay, wrong feel.
1: I I don't know that biophysics. I mean, it does definitely. It has has a role, right? Like the the um the protein folding, like the the protein confirmation, definitely plays a role, like in whether an enzyme is going to function or not, or whether you know a viral protein is going to still be active or not, or produce the right um you know antigen suppressant molecule. So definitely, like it is physics, but I think like what people assume for like, um, or, or they, they characterize as mine. Like this is part of my field. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know that biophysics uh, claims that one, but, um, you know, like right now I'm doing a lot of different, um, a lot of work with the atomic force microscopy. And, and so like, there's a lot of things like when you want to like look and deform, like how like pliable and, um, it's, it's those like material properties. Uh, so let me like think of another, um, example oh so so microscopy is actually huge biophysics right like so like that that's like something that like the physicists own the microscopes but like unless unless they're functional for the biologists so that's like a a good example like of of, like all Hmm. microscopy laser scanning confocal and different kinds of microscopy like the the people that really do microscopy they're in biophysics and so like i think i think biochemistry adopted the protein folding stuff because while it is physics definitely i'm not going to deny that i think it's um not, not been adopted by that field. And like coming from neuroscience and now working in active inference, it's like, I'm also in like, active inference is not neuroscience. (laughs) Like that it's just not, it's like, it's like cognitive, it's cognitive science. So there used to be like, I I don't know, like, so psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, like they all do different things. It's all very like who claims what, but I I mean, yeah, it's, it's all brain science, right?
0: Right. And different terminology, different tools, different techniques, different ways of thinking about things. It sort of shapes the inquiry, but it sounds like you're interested in kind of, well, let's just cut through all that. And, you know, I mean, Santa Fe Institute tried cross-cutting ways of looking, different ways of looking at things. So I wanted to ask you about that. You talked about the tools uh, that you learned at Santa Fe Institute really inspiring you. And so talk about that a little bit. What, Specifically, what kinds of tools could you point to that, that, you know, the average person will be able to make sense of?
1: So, like, network analysis is probably the biggest one, okay. the one that I use the yeah. most. Um, and really, like, information theory and, like, looking at information flow in networks, like, I kind of, that's, like, I like that little spot. <laughs> right? Right. So that that was, like, my, my favorite, um, I think, like, tool that I learned uh, about in um at at the uh, Santa Fe Institute and like learned about it even more after that. So that, Mm -hmm. that kind of was, was my favorite, but, but there are many tools and it's not just the tool. It's also using the tools like for something totally new. So like, like, you know, can you look at network analysis for um, both like gene networks, but also like social networks. So like there's a sociological component and, just the ap- application across many fields of a tool mm-hmm. that like, you know, belonged primarily used to be this field, but now it's, we mm-hmm. use it everywhere. So, so these mm-hmm. kinds of things.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about network analysis, you know, down at the very basic level um, you have different entities, for example, in a population or, or a sample. And uh, I think the conventional way of thinking about these things is, as distinct into entities And reductionism would kind of break them down and look at the entity, but networks are looking at the interactions of those entities and sort of explain to me sort of what, how you begin to approach that kind of, you know, like what are, they're called nodes and edges, I think, in network science.
1: Right, and so so nodes and edges. Um, I, I wasn't really ready to give a lecture on network science, but but I think about it like the electrical grid, right? So so yeah. really like like that's the simplest, um, easiest way to for for me to think about it, really. So and especially about transmission in a network when you when you think about how things flow. Uh, so everybody, you know, there's power produced at different places. So there's power hub, power hub, power hub, power hub. But somehow that power needs to all connect and power everyone in the grid and like Mm -hmm. the grids are removed. So there's like, you know, the Southwest grid, the Northeast grid. I mean, there's many, I don't know all the ins and outs of the grids, but, Mm -hmm. but, but when you think about the the network, so each node would then be like either a source of electricity or a sink of -hmm. electricity, even though like at the source, you also require power, but, but so, and there's the edges are the, literally the, the power lines that connect those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I used to work in the utility industry. You, did, you just did great. So, uh, so edges and nodes and the flows between them, and that's a way of thinking about, you know, can be applied to a lot of different kinds of systems, right? It's what you were saying—biology, chemistry, electrical grids, people, right? So, so what is it about networks? If you're, is it kind of like thinking in an abstract sense? of well, let's let's not look at Specifics. Let's sort of back up and take a look at how this how this network is interacting, right? So, how would you how would you think about that?
1: So, for me, like the the interactions in the network are definitely interesting, and how like things move between the nodes in the network, um, and how how to quantify that kind of thing, like the current, you know, that's flowing through the electrical wire. Um, but but more than that, so so what I really um, you know what? What really like made me love it was like the fact that yes, we have a network of electrical nodes, either sources or sinks, a- and we also have um, a network of, of edges connecting them. But like those sources or sinks also contain like their own network within mm-hmm. them. So like within a house, there like there's no source of electricity in a house, or or maybe there is if you have a solar. Uh, panel mm-hmm. so like maybe you have your own source within your house we have your own little source and then you have many different sinks. like so where the electricity is going in your house like to power my computer my monitor my headset like all these different things the air conditioning and so there's a network of networks of networks of networks and I just like that just does it for me <laughs> it just really I love like the um and this is what I love about complexity is the, the scaling between different hierarchical levels, like within a a, a system um, and and how information flows is passed upward um, is kind of concretized. Like my brain says I'm thirsty, but like my brain didn't directly receive a message from like every single cell in my body that says, I don't have enough water. Like, so there's the information is concentrated somehow. And like, how does that, go like from, you know, the atomic level to the cellular level, to the tissue organ, organism. And then like, even like to the family, to the environment, like to your own community, to like the ecosystem, all the other types of organisms that you interact with. So, so for me like that really kind of being able to like, just even have a lens into how things scale in a hierarchical way, like just is like, perfect.
0: Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Uh, I know one, one of the books up here is Jeffrey West's Scale, which deals, deals with a lot of that stuff, how the interactions itself, the interactions of people, the interactions of cities, you know, are all have similar network characteristics, right? So what are, what are some of the things that we find in networks when we look at them in that generalized, in that generalized way?
1: Well, I mean, you find like hubs where, like, you know, there are like super super spreaders for a virus, for instance, and so you find like you know places that have a lot of connections, mm-hmm. um, or also like you find like isolated pockets, and, and so it's just it's like you can you can look at different networks, you can do community detection, you can you know analyze things in different ways. So, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so there there are tools that are used in network analysis then that that can be applied not just to biology but also to social science and. Um, and you know one of the one of the phrases that comes up is um, about networks is scale free. What's a what is a scale free designation for uh, a network?
1: So the scale free network is the um, hmm, like I'm trying to think like there's the it's a non-regular network right the scale-free designation I think is what like that means as opposed to like something that's very regular
0: but you that's see that pattern for example in networks across a variety of different fields so it's a thinking about networks and things like you know the scaling of that network uh, yeah I'm remembering one now in terms of metabolism right there's a famous uh, study about metabolism in animals and you know, they, they get bigger. Their metabolism has to slow down, and they get smaller, and the metabolism speeds up. You know, and there's the heart heartbeat thing, and that uh, that scale applies to that calculation, and uh, and says that well, there's a relationship between size and metabolism. So that's that's an example of of a network that has a pattern to it that can then be analyzed and studied and used for. For prediction right
1: well so so it's the scale free network is like the um it's a highly connected network is is what it is so like what it's as opposed to like a sparse network where like those are not as amenable to to like mathematical analysis of any form because you can't divide by zero like long story short so yeah. like where there's no no connection between the different nodes that's a harder network to do any kind of analysis on so the scale free is not like it's not regular it's not like a regularized it's it's not a fully connect connect I mean, is a fully connected network a scale-free network I don't know um, I, I don't I don't know honestly
0: hmm. um, but, but but that's one of those questions that that thinking about things in terms of networks you can see you know we've got eight billion humans and that means, their re, their interconnections act in a certain way, and you know we've all heard this, the six degrees of separation kind of analysis. So there'd be there'd be a similar calculation for any network. You know how how long does it take to get from one point to another in a network? And, right, right. Um,
1: and and the sparse networks it doesn't work because it's like you know the guy living in the cave is never going to get COVID. Right. Like, it's never right. it's never going it to happen. Him. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I and I guess another example: the immune system is is one of those sophisticated networks in in a given human body, right? I've, that's what I've heard is very complex. Lots of connections between the types of cells and the interfaces between, so it can be viewed as a as a network type response, not just as you know individual cells. and
1: I haven't heard that one. So, but I mean, it's been like 20, 20 years since I even had a single course in immunology. Biology is so broad. Like I never have taken like uh, any kind of, I've never had a course in evolution, for example. So like when you do, like I'm good inside of a cell. I'm comfortable with protein folding, like biochemistry, but like in in a very broad way, like zooming out, that's kind of more like... um, that's not cell and molecular. It's like, <laughs> so like evolution, ecology, which is all fascinating. But but I, I uh, it's been a long time since I studied the immune system. And, yeah, and
0: but that's an insulin. example of how different, you know, a network, we just, we started talking about networks and now we're talking about all different types of biology and network analysis also applies to computers and computer networks and, you know, the, I'm the more stars comfortable in the with sky. <laughs> yeah, or the stars in the sky. So, so it's an example of the, a tool, a way of thinking about things that complexity science has uh, worked on that, that gives you a tool that applies to all sorts of different fields.
1: Yeah. And like the extraction of a core of a network, I think is also really fascinating because it gives you like the most um, like prominent nodes in the network, like the, the essential nodes for transmission. So like, that's like, if you knock out, you know, one of the power supplies in an electrical grid or knock out even a, a hub where all the wires are routed through, like if all the wires can't go, then, you know, it's, it's not going to, the what you, there's not going to be a path from A to Z if you mm-hmm. knock something out around to M.
0: Yeah. And uh, there are also in networks and the operation networks feedback loops, right? So that's another way that using that network model, you can think about things that, you know, the effect goes out, but then the effects will come back through the network. And that feedback loop is part of the old um, uh, the field, I guess, called cybernetics, which was one of the early fields of complexity science is the way feedbacks and and uh, feedback works.
1: Yeah, and then that's also like in in biological networks, um, and and maybe in cybernetics as well. The feedback like gets amplified in a way that's nonlinear. So like just you know, send out one you know transcription factor and it does a whole lot of things. Right, just just that one little molecule of uh, can you know have a huge effect, or the absence yeah. of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Getting sick is obviously a network. Effect a cascading network effect from feedback that's unconstrained, and the process is unconstrained. This this is fascinating. So I want to I want to shift gears. We've talked a lot talked about your uh, neuroscience background, and then went off into networks and complexity science. Um, But you're you're active in uh, a field and with a laboratory called the Active Inference Lab.
1: Yeah, not a laboratory in like the, you know, classical sense, but but now we're officially actually the Active Inference Institute. So we've just undergone a um, 5013C restructuring and um, have changed our name to uh, reflect the different activities that we're involved in, including research, education, and others.
0: So in the academic network, you're stepping up up into a bigger node by becoming an institute. That's... <laughs> Congratulations! Thanks. So, Thanks. Um, well, that's great. So, explain uh, like I don't know anything. Explain what active inference is.
1: So, active inference is a, a theory that started out as a theory of of cognition and and processing information, uh, and now it's widely used in artificial intelligence and can be used to explain. Um, behavior, not only cognition but but all behavior that is uh, done in terms of input and output.
0: Okay, I know what the word inference refers to. It's like you know looking for something and making an inference about what would happen if you do this or that or something. And what's the, act, what's the active part and how does it how does it work in a, give me an example of sort of a way of thinking about active inference.
1: So, a- active inferences is, um, you know, I- inferences is kind of on the perception end. So, so we think about like the perception and action, and then there's like the the states that go into that. So, if I want to. Determine whether a surface is smooth or rough. If I tell you, put your hand on the table and tell me if that what does the surface feel like. You actually don't know what the surface feels like until you move your hand. So, in order to perceive, you must act. Or, like what's in the box, you have to open the lid. So, so action and perception are constantly in feedback with one another.
0: And is this uh, is this a way of thinking about things, sort of the biological types of things, or does it apply generally to different kinds of Um, objects or things or
1: so it's scale friendly active inference and and can apply to biological things which become increasingly complex when you um you know think about single cells all the way up to um organisms but but also uh like there are there's mere active inference which is just like a um you know, like you could think about input output just of like a computer, a cybernetic system, um, like a vacuuming robot or, or something like that. So, so there's always input output. Um, whether a system can act with agency, <laughs> which is like you know, kind of what determines um, mm-hmm. whether it's a mere active inference entity or like an actual active inference entity right. so and like one where, ex- where to draw the line between those two is kind of mm-hmm. like it's always a little fuzzy for me
0: yeah so an example might be say the, uh, a cell like a, a bacteria cell which is swimming around in its environment it senses has a way of sensing or reaching out or sensing you know biochemical sensors what's in the environment and and uh, it will respond to that based upon what it doesn't think, but based upon the mechanics. So it might get a signal that there's food, and it will then embrace the uh, and consume the item if it's so. So that's a that sort of a perception. Uh, uh and then response that's for the benefit of the organism right so that's that's an exa- mini little example of active inference at work in a in a cell yeah okay and then you can go from cell to the cells participating in a complex organism where each yes. cell each cell still has its own little process of sensing and receiving and responding and now it's all part of this massive network as part of an organism. And the organism is in, in, a, in another sense at a higher level, sensing and perceiving and acting.
1: We always think about it like a higher level, but I I often wonder, <laughs> maybe like we're the lower level. So So maybe we're just the vehicle that the cells use to drive around and do what they want to do. Who knows?
0: <laughs> that would suggest that they have aspirations and desires, and um, that's an interesting, interesting thought.
1: I don't presume to know that they don't. Uh, um, and you know, we always <clears throat> kind of start off with uh, inactive inference, which doesn't explain things like self-sacrifice and um, you know, uh, uh, negative behavior. But, but we always kind of assume that cells, bacteria, humans, or all living things want to survive. So like you assume that the under underlying drive, you know, even if that's the only drive is to exist.
0: So aren't uh, uh, again, I don't know much about immunology, but don't aren't the T cells the kind that will sense and then self-destruct, you know, destroy the bacteria but destroy themselves in the process. So is that that sort of self <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but that that's an example of self-sacrifice. The uh, altruistic
1: behavior. And even you yeah. see it in ants, right? Like so the ants will, you know, go all go inside and then the last ant left out will plug the hole so the water can't get in and it'll die in the rainstorm. So like you see that kind of altruistic behavior uh, across the animal kingdom.
0: Right. And it's it's uh, it looks altruistic, but it may simply simply be the combination of chemical stimuli. Uh, and positional stimuli, and that, that could result in that behavior without any um, any motive, in sort of the internal motivation. I guess is what it's kind of getting me to. My mind is a little bit crazy here about the internal motivation that an ant might or might not have in self-sacrificing for the colony, or is it simply just an instinctive response that it does because its stimuli cause well, it to do that.
1: So it's super interesting to think about and like in the same way that the natural killer cells will sacrifice to save, you know, the greater organism, maybe the ant sacrifices to save the nest or the human sacrifices to save the family or the community. So we all have this kind of self-sacrificing and maybe we're just cells in like the, the giant organism of humankind. You know, maybe we're all just one big living, breathing organism and we're all just, you know, we have to do our part. So I, I don't presume to know these things, but it's fun to think about them.
0: Yeah, that, that's an exciting way to think about it all. Uh, it's kind of built up in this um, from one nested network of in things into another nested network to another nested network. It kind of gives you a picture of how the whole thing hangs together.
1: I mean, a muddy picture, but yeah, that's like, very muddy. (laughs) it's like one of those, it's a Van Gogh painting. (laughs) You know, nothing's, nothing's very clear. Don't try to, you know, examine it with a magnifying glass, but, but it's, and that's what I like about the multi-layer, multi-level network analysis also, because it's, it's, you know, that's the same kind of hierarchical scaling that, that um, is really what I find
0: fascinating. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's an important message from complexity science is that, you know when you divide things up to look at them and you know apart you you're, you're maybe missing something important about how, how they interact and definitely and that applies you know we can think about it in terms of ecology if you were to look at an ecology by taking a look at in, the individual pieces and not seeing how they fit together you're going to miss the whole story same thing with the human body we go to these cells if it's, they're working together it's how that's the interesting thing is how they work together if you start looking at the cells, you miss miss that picture. So that's one of the things that complexity science does. It forces us to think about things in a way that's, you know, kind of connects them across scale. That's exciting. That's pretty exciting. Um, so uh, changing gears a little bit. Um, this sounds like, um, you know, I, I mean, you you were in neuroscience. Uh, you pursued that for a period of time. Now you're in complexity science. Um, and it sounds like uh, there are things that aren't, that aren't easy to answer, right? So how do you make sense of this stuff that is difficult, uh, uncertain, can't necessarily be answered? The com- complexity stuff.
1: So, I mean, we all like, you can chase down a rabbit hole, right? And like, you can answer, but why? But why? But why? But why? But why? Like, like a two year old? Um, and we all kind of reach the end of the rope and just have to say, well, because. <laughs> right? So, so I mean, that, that like would never uh, satisfy me ever. And, you know, I mean, I think um, we kind of all do it in a different way maybe. But, but for me, like when I reach the end of my, but why rope, like I, I turn to like spirituality and like my own, you know, spiritual process. So.
0: Yeah. And so, um, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you have a, a tradition from your childhood that, uh, that you've embraced or has maybe changed over time.
1: So I, um, for, as a child was raised, like, you know, going to psychic fairs and I saw an astrologer like every six months from birth and had past life readings and, you know, went to like psychic fairs and did, did different things like that. So, um, that was kind of a, a bizarre, like new age uh, upbringing. Um, but, but I became Buddhist at 19, um, which is kind of like, I guess I can unpack this story for you. I was in art school in Santa Fe and they took us to, um, draw the stupa. So there's a beautiful, um, Buddhist stupa in Santa Fe. It's way out of town. So, but if you're ever there, we were there drawing and there's a garden and I was there like, you know, as a, as a class field trip. Um, but, uh, I, I felt just incredibly drawn to the place. So uh, this was many years ago and I, I just like kept going back. Like I would go to the bookstore and I would go to like teachings and chantings that were like literally in Tibetan. So, so like, this is like, I just, I wanted to go and I wanted to be there. And, you know, I just started to read and study Buddhism and um, have pursued that for, you know, 20 some years at this point now. So.
0: And, uh, Uh, so that experience was give you a sense of place, a feeling like you had a, had a place or a sense of peace and it didn't have any, it didn't have anything to do with the chaos around you. It was just that feeling that you got there.
1: You know, I don't even know that it gave me a sense of peace. I don't think that that's the right way to describe it. I think it gave me like a hunger for more, a desire to go back. So as opposed to like a sensation of equanimity. Like I was very, very drawn to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, got just s- immersed in the, you know, study and practice of Buddhism in many different traditions and formats since mm-hmm. then. So.
0: And what in that tradition, uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you connect up this heavy, you know, sort of cognitive stuff that you do all the time in complexity science and neuroscience? And, you know, how do you connect up with, you know, with your feeling about, you know, about who you are and how you, how you make sense, what's your purpose and how you make sense.
1: It's funny because I I never really realized that like, like my, Pursuit of Buddhism and also like my pursuit of neuroscience and um, you know active inference now like cognition and and kind of cognitive science and how we we study things but but really like there's a huge degree of convergence and and you'll see many um, books out there on Buddhism and neuroscience and the effects of meditation on the brain and um, you know regulation it's like thought regulation is like possible like no feedback like there's all this stuff that you see and and you know it's not. I guess I always pursued both um, for a deeper understanding of the brain and the mind, but as a scientist, like fundamentally I'm a scientist. I'm driven by logic. I love to study. I'm hyper curious. So when you're going to investigate a thing, like anything, um, you you need to understand that the tools that you're using, you're using for measurement and analysis. Like you need to know what are the limits of the spectrophotometer, like the limits of absorption and and what wavelengths does it absorb? And so you need to understand the limits of the instrument that you're using to make your analysis. And and the instrument that I'm using to make every single analysis every single day is my brain. And, And so like, I can't, until i understand like my brain my own cognitive processes like like through whether it's through sitting meditation or through like actually studying the way that the brain works like like until we understand this like how can we objectively understand or know anything and so it's funny that like you know there's i've had this like huge degree of convergence in like my spiritual tradition and my like field of study which i didn't plan on that but that's mm-hmm. okay like I, i'm i'm good with that it's
0: yeah so it's, is, gelling. it's good is the is the buddhism a pursuit of answers is it is it a compulsion or a pursuit but just in a different form or a different mode
1: yeah <laughs> like definitely i mean the buddhism is is very much the study of the mind right, right? and study, the, study internal, and the
0: internal mind not not the not somebody else's mind right but your own mind right yeah
1: so so it's it's very much that uh, and also it's a you know very um, it, it's not a faith bi- it's not a faith based religion mm-hmm. like so it's it's investigate yourself and figure it out like and where you kind of get some guidance but but mostly you just have to do the work mm-hmm. you have to investigate and see for yourself and what do you think the answer is like so it's it's a lot of it is kind of that that way as opposed to just like believe this because mm-hmm. I say it so. So it's kind of, you know, there's no like prescription. Like you, I mean, there's like the the prescription given by Buddha, which is just like sit with it, mm-hmm. right? But but I mean, really, like you have to um, do the work,
0: right? So one of the historical contrasts, uh, at least in the West, has been between the presumptive scientific discipline and scientific approach to things, and then the revealed doctrine that's kind of. Uh, implicit in many religions including Christianity and so this creates this tension that goes on there um and you know and I think some practitioners will feel it too they'll have this faith and then they have this this science and you know it doesn't necessarily integrate that well do you feel like your scientific pursuit and your and your Buddhist spirituality pursuits are are integrated or complementary
1: Definitely. Like, like, so it's like, um, if you ascribe to the scientific method, right? Like, Buddhism is like the scientific method for your spiritual life. <laughs> like, I, th- I think about it like that. Like, I don't see them as, um, I don't see a lot of division there. Now, there is a lot of division, like, there are a lot of scientific practices that, like, go against Buddhist principles. Like, research and killing and torturing animals for example for example so like definitely like there's a lot of um muddy (laughs) areas like there's a lot of gray space there but i I think as a practice um like practicing studying the brain and practicing you know being a buddhist is is not it's not that different Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. and uh it sounds like part of it is uh driven by curiosity right both both science and The spiritual practice you follow are, let's let's get curious. Let's really delve into this and be open and be curious. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any, uh, have you had any kind of uh, things that flow from your spiritual practice that give you insights into something on the scientific side? Or is it a kind of different, two different worlds?
1: So... (laughs) Like, yes and no, in in a, like, strange way. Um, And in in the way that, like, when I am studying and focusing and I'm reading and I'm trying to, like, digest, you know, 150 PDFs in two days or something like that, like, you know, just constantly putting in information and and really, like, there's not a lot of time to step back Hmm. and, like, think about what I'm reading or what I'm studying. Uh, um, I think that my, like, meditation practice, but also just, like, sometimes taking a break to go for a walk. Or to take a shower or like, you know, I think back to like my grad school days, it was like just like hard. It was really like relentless, you know? Um, and really like in that peace, in that stillness, like that's where the coolest things bubble up. Mm-hmm. So whether that is in, is in meditation or, mm-hmm. um, you know, in exercise or some other, but like when you make the room in your brain, like all those, all, all the network connections can kind of solidify and gel. And then like you, you get out great ideas in that way.
0: I think that's probably a useful way of thinking about it because the, you know, it takes time for the processing and digesting and processing. Or the digesting is a biological metaphor. Um, you know, processing is maybe a computer metaphor, but it takes time to have all of that information flow, filter, coordinate. And after all, there are a hundred billion neurons up there that have to get, you know, have to take their, each one has to take its place in the process. So um so yeah so it sounds like as one of a, a practical from a practical standpoint you know that yeah you can absorb information and uh you know and absorb a lot of it you know drink from the fire hose for a little while but then you need that time for all of that stuff to do whatever it is doing to make sense of it all yeah definitely yeah yeah well that's that's a pretty interesting way of thinking about it so that's from a sort of a methodological standpoint, but, but also from, I mean, you, if you're a scientist, you believe in the the power of empirical science and investigation and, you know, mathematical models and all of that good stuff, right. And active inference, that sort of active inference, you know, with a capital A, um, capital I. Um, So, um, uh, so that's, that, do you feel you have that, you know, is that commitment that you have to that methodology and science and that approach, is that, is that somehow a spiritual commitment?
1: You know, George, when you want to see things the way that they really are, like you just approach it from all the angles that are possible to, mm-hmm. to really kind of get there. mm mm-hmm. Uh, or, or maybe, like, there is no way things we really are, which is, like, kind of what I've been coming more and more to as I'm, you know, maturing. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that things really are for me is it's never going to be the way things really are for you, mm-hmm. right? Like, so mm-hmm. so we have some overlap of our quantum reference frames, some degree of shared truth or shared reality, some things we see similarly, but not everything. Mm-hmm. So nobody can stand a- and see the world from the way I see it.
0: And that... uh That is uh, partly from a Buddhist tradition of being able to see see things that are, I don't want to say opposites, but just to hold things that have ambivalence, right, that don't necessarily have answers. Or maybe the answer is yes and.
1: Yes, and. (laughs) There we go. It's from from a Buddhist perspective, but but it's also from the perspective of neuroscience. I mean, it, like when I'm looking at my sensors, I know that they're not the same as yours, mm-hmm. you know. And and the like, you, we don't even know that, like, if we're looking at the color yellow, that we see it the same way or that we have the same perception. I mean, people have different color, different favorite colors, and mm-hmm. so the colors make everyone feel differently. And you know, we just don't know. So so it, there's no correct. I, I'm okay with not having. Um, I'm okay with not having the answer. Mm-hmm. That's okay with me. Like, yeah. I, I still like to try to figure out, figure it out. I'm still going to try to yeah. pursue knowing.
0: Well, you get excited <laughs> about the challenge of seeing something that you don't understand and trying to put it together. That's, a, that's part of what you're doing. That's why you're in science in the first place, right? To make those puzzles work. Um, yeah, so um, I often ask uh, my guests, uh, I think you may already have answered this, about... Um, uh, that sensation of a, of a spiritual experience, a transcendent experience, something that happened to you that you can't really explain, but it really helped to shape your life. And I think you sort of already yeah. gave that. Yeah, <laughs> You're and, good. I covered it. <laughs> yeah. And how I'm, I'm curious about uh, and you revisit, do you go back to the stupa?
1: I do occasionally so I still have some family in Santa Fe and I mean my kid I have two small children and so like I I also am not going to take them into a stupa so it's like getting up to Santa Fe not having the kids I would cruise by I think it's probably been like three years ish since I've been
0: by but yeah but does that does that place still hold that you know kind of that precious specialness for you when you're there
1: You know, Santa Fe as a town, (laughs) like, is so special to me. Um, I mean, I dropped out of high school, like, was, skipped two grades in school, and then just said, like, this is, I'm done. Like, I'm not doing this. This is just dumb. Um, And so I dropped out of high school, and I got my GED and started art school in Santa Fe. And I Mm -hmm. had been to, like, some rigorous academic, like, hardcore, you know, academic stressing. uh, That was my entire, you know, school career. And so I was like, I just want to paint. (laughs) <laughs> like so 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 just like santa fe like i've never painted before i'm like i have no like natural artistic inclination but i'm like i'm in the desert i'm just gonna paint because that's what it's cool to do out here right or, or whatever i don't know so i started art school went to art school in santa fe and and like no regrets i mean that whole time and experience and it was like i was 16 so it's all just so like formative right so it's like the entire you know formative years of my like 16 to, to 21 i spent in santa fe and um, maybe a little more than that, a little less, give or take. So just, it, it, it like, I found myself, my life, my purpose. I went to art school. I, th- I always kept, took math. I was always good at math and I thought I was going to be an architect. Um, and then it, we were sequencing the genome and I was like, you know, I like solving puzzles. I want to go solve that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, I just got into biochemistry and like, no, no regrets. Like everything kind of just flowed the way that it should, but, but definitely, um, like my experience living, being in Santa Fe, both in terms of like a scientific career and artist, um, j- uh, like a Buddhist, <laughs> so like I was like a a pivotal like angle um, for me and, and like very formative time in my life.
0: And perhaps it could have happened someplace else, but it happened there, right? Yeah, yeah. And as
1: did the complexity, as did my introduction to complexity. Yeah. So like yeah. I went back to Santa Fe and you know had had another pivotal transformative summer. So at the Santa Fe I'm Institute, almost, which is it almost you makes
0: know. you wonder if this is there something special about the, the water or the mountains or have you been? Uh, I visited Santa Fe, but that was long before I knew what the Santa Fe Institute was. So, um, and uh, it just reminds me of the comments I've heard from uh, people familiar with the Celtic tradition about the thin place, right? It's a place where maybe for whatever reason, geological, magnetic, you know, astronomical, whatever, it may be a place that just the, the boundaries are, are thinner between ways of perceiving you know, in this case, sort of a spiritual way of perceiving, a scientific way of perceiving the boundaries get a little thinner and it enables people. And, you know, people talk about uh, what uh, hallucinogenics do for some people in terms of thinning the the boundaries and giving a sense of connection. But um, yeah, no, I'm definitely going to go back. I haven't had the opportunity um, in a while, but I'm going back virtually with talking with you and some others on the on the podcast and getting getting great inspiration and joy out of it. Awesome. Yeah. Good. So, Blue, thank you very much. This has been delightful. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, we will sign off and talk to you again sometime.
1: Thanks, George. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. We will be taking a short break, but we'll resume recordings in September. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or in spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.